Welcome to The Last Full Measure with Carter McNish, a show dedicated to telling the stories of our nation's greatest battles in which Hillsdalians fought. Today, we discuss the bloodiest single day in American history, September 17th, 1862, and the Battle of Antietam. September 17th, 1862. As the sun rises over the misty fields around Sharpsburg, Maryland, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia finds itself trapped within a meander of the Potomac River with only one route of escape back to Virginia. Lee knows he cannot evacuate his army all at once due to the small size of the crossing, and has resolved to delay the Union army opposite him as long as he can in order to buy time for a daring nighttime escape. Just over two weeks after his great victory at Manassas, Lee's army is stuck with its back against the wall, and the Union army has Lee right where it wants him. Two weeks before, after their great victory at the Second Battle of Bull Run, the Army of Northern Virginia began marching northwestward towards the Potomac River and the state of Maryland beyond. Back in Washington, D.C., President Lincoln scrambled to organize a response once the news of Lee's continued advance arrived. Lincoln was severely disappointed by both of his commanders, Generals McClellan and Pope, but needing to find a commander quickly, chose McClellan to continue to lead the Union Army. McClellan jumped on the opportunity to regain his reputation after the failed Peninsula Campaign and began marching from Washington in the first week of September. General Pope, meanwhile, was reassigned to command a rundown fort on the frontier, never to hold a major command again after his catastrophic failure at Bull Run. McClellan marched at his usual slow pace, however, and allowed Lee to gain a significant lead ahead of the Union Army. Confederate troops began crossing into Maryland on September 3rd, and the Army's bands played the song O Maryland by Maryland as they crossed. Lee's invasion was as much a public relations stunt as it was a military threat. When war broke out in 1861, Maryland had nearly voted to secede. The only thing that had stopped Maryland from joining the Confederacy was Lincoln's imprisonment of the entire Maryland legislature, a controversial move that sparks constitutional debate to this day. Lee hoped to convince the people of Maryland to join the Southern cause by treating them well and making the Union Army look foolish, and playing Maryland My Maryland was all part of his ploy. If he could accomplish this, Washington, D.C. would be but a small blue dot in a sea of gray, surrounded on all sides by the Confederacy. By September 9th, Lee's army had marched well into Maryland, reaching the town of Frederick. General Lee held a council of war. He decided to split the army into two pieces. Stonewall Jackson's corps would march southwest to Harper's Ferry, where a 20,000-strong Union garrison posed a threat to Lee's supply line and destroy it. Meanwhile, Lee himself would accompany Longstreet's corps in their continued public relations campaign in and around Frederick. Lee, knowing the Union army was marching to Frederick at that very moment, gambled on Jackson's speed and skill, hoping that Jackson could take Harper's Ferry and defeat the Union force within in only a few days, and rejoin with Longstreet before the Union army arrived. After the meeting, Lee drafted the appropriate orders and sent couriers to all of his generals to convey them. However, one oversight would prove disastrous for the Confederates. One of the notes only made it a few miles from Frederick before one of the couriers accidentally dropped a copy of the orders, which he had wrapped around two cigars. He did not notice he had lost them until he had already ridden far away from the spot and was not able to retrieve them. A few days later, Corporal Barton Mitchell of the 27th Indiana Infantry found a mysterious package on the side of the road when he sat down to eat lunch. He unfolded the papers and found to his delight two fresh cigars and a note. The note looked important, so he gave it to his commander, but the cigars he kept for himself. The note, Special Order 191, rapidly made its way up the ranks until it landed in the hands of General George McClellan himself. Its contents included the entirety of the Confederate Army's future movements, its condition, organization, and most importantly, its strength. McClellan was delighted, and showed the note to his friend, and commander of the Iron Brigade, formerly known as the Black Hatters, John Gibbon. McClellan exclaimed, Now I know what to do. Here is a paper with which, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. He then sent a telegraph to President Lincoln. 
I have the whole rebel force in front of me, but I am confident, and no time shall be lost. I think Lee has made a gross mistake, and that he will be severely punished for it. I have all the plans of the rebels, and will catch them in their own trap if my men are equal to the emergency. We'll send you trophies. McClellan seized on the opportunity and began marching rapidly towards Frederick. Lee's scouts noticed the change in speed and alerted Lee. Lee pondered for a while and reasoned, to his dismay, that the only viable reason for McClellan's confidence could be new intelligence. Lee soon realized that McClellan had captured his orders when the Union Army began mimicking Confederate movements as indicated by the orders and realized the gravity of the situation. Lee, already outnumbered more than two to one by the Union Army, had split his army into three parts, and now the Union knew not only that, but exactly where the three parts were located. Lee, formerly on the offensive, was now on damage control. He sent a flurry of messages to his commanders, ordering them to march westward and converge on the western side of the chain of large hills collectively known as South Mountain. As Lee's force scrambled westward, McClellan's army came marching hot on their heels. Soon, Lee realized that McClellan was marching as fast as he was, and with Jackson still besieging Harper's Ferry, Lee could not regroup with him before McClellan caught up. Lee decided to make a stand and try to delay McClellan long enough for Jackson to take Harper's Ferry and rejoin Lee. Lee placed Longstreet's corps in position guarding three passes over South Mountain, one division guarding the National Road, today's US-40, a second guarding the smaller Fox Gap less than a mile to the south, and a third guarding the larger Crampton Gap a few miles farther south. Lee hoped to use the choke points to mitigate McClellan's numbers advantage. On September 14th, the Union Army arrived and McClellan ordered an assault on the mountain to dislodge the Confederates. The fighting was fierce. Union troops advancing into the gaps came under fire from entrenched Confederates shooting at them from three sides. All of the gaps changed hands multiple times over the course of the fighting. By now, both armies consisted mainly of veteran troops, and neither side could be easily convinced to relinquish the field. Finally, however, in the late afternoon, simultaneous breakthroughs in all the gaps forced Lee to order a withdrawal further westward. McClellan had won his first victory against Lee and was now poised to strike him down once and for all. But at Harper's Ferry, Confederate fortunes were much better. Jackson at Harper's Ferry had received the bad news and sped up his operations. Jackson, a former artillery instructor at VMI, put his skills to use and placed his 50 guns all around the town after fighting a number of small engagements to seize the heights surrounding it. For days, the Union troops watched helplessly as more and more guns appeared on the ridges above them, until finally, on September 15th, Jackson's guns opened fire on the town. The bombardment was only an hour old when the Union troops raised white flags and surrendered en masse to Jackson's force. The surrender of the 12,000-man garrison would be the largest surrender of American troops ever until the capture of the Bataan Peninsula in the Philippines in 1942. Jackson left one of his divisions, under the command of A.P. Hill, to process the prisoners back in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, while he began marching the other two towards Maryland. After the Battle of South Mountain, Lee decided to begin retreating back toward Virginia, and the nearest crossing on the Potomac River was a mile west of the town of Sharpsburg. Lee ordered Jackson and the rest of the army to converge on Sharpsburg and regroup. Lee hoped that the good defensive geography he spotted on his maps would help even the odds in the fight he knew was coming. On the 16th, Jackson and Lee met in Sharpsburg and deployed for battle. The Confederate lines stretched between a meander in the Potomac River to the west and the Antietam Creek to the east. The main part of the line was a mile-long stretch between Miller's Cornfield, near the Potomac River, to the lower bridge on the Antietam Creek. The Confederate line took full advantage of the terrain, running along a series of hills and ridges while using patches of woods to conceal reserves. Many of the fields themselves acted as camouflage as the harvest was close at hand, and the rows of corn stood taller than a man. Lee deployed Jackson's two divisions to guard the cornfield and woods on the left flank, and Longstreet's three divisions in the center and on the right flank. Longstreet's troops occupied excellent positions. 
The center of the Confederate line ran through a sunken road which, like the railroad cut at Manassas two weeks before, provided a ready-made trench in which to take cover. Then, on the extreme right, the lower bridge was dominated by steep ridges on the Confederate side of the creek, and an open field on the Union side, allowing Confederates to rain down fire on any approaching Union troops without them being able to take cover. On that same day, the 16th, McClellan arrived with his whole army and deployed oppositely on the other side of the Antietam Creek. For McClellan, all that was left to do was to drive Lee's army into the river and kill or capture them all, and the question on every Union general's mind was how. McClellan held a council of war with all of his major commanders in order to find out. General Joseph Hooker, commander of the Union First Corps, proposed to take two corps, his own and General Joseph Manfield's 12th Corps, on a wide march to the north and attack the Confederate left flank at the cornfield in force. He would break the line there and advance to Sharpsburg and cut off the Confederate line of retreat to the Potomac, allowing the rest of the army to advance and crush what remained of Lee's army. McClellan liked the plan and gave Hooker permission to make preparations for his attack. Meanwhile, he pondered what to do in support of Hooker's advance, and as he considered what to do, day turned into night, and the generals returned to their commands. McClellan retired undecided and before dawn the next morning gave the final verdict in a series of letters to his commanders. He would attack along the entire front, left, center, and right flanks all at the same time, preventing Lee from shifting his units to support threatened areas as all of his line would be under attack. It was a flawless plan save for one detail. Only Hooker's men were prepared for an early morning move, and it would take time for the other parts of the army to get ready to attack. As the sun rose in the morning of September 17, 1862, it revealed the foggy, early morning atmosphere of Appalachian, Maryland. The fog hampered Union communications, with General Sumner in the center of the line only receiving his orders hours after dawn, with Burnside on the extreme Union left, opposite the lower bridge, receiving his even later hours after Hooker began his march promptly at dawn. This delay in communications would prove to be heartbreaking for the Union Army, as the three attacks, Hooker in the north, Sumner in the center, and Burnside in the south, would all come in piecemeal and uncoordinated, allowing Lee to shift units from unengaged sectors to reinforce parts of his line under attack, exactly the opposite of what McClellan wanted. Hooker's attack in the north was the first to occur. His force began marching at dawn, crossing the Antietam Creek at North Bridge and advancing towards the cornfield and Dunker Church beyond, in which General Stonewall Jackson had set up his headquarters. The mist concealed Hooker's movements, and the 1st and 12th Corps moved undetected by the Confederates. Soon, they reached the cornfield and quietly deployed for battle. Soon the attack was ready, and at 6 a.m., Hooker's Corps, with Mansfield's Corps and the reserve behind them, began marching toward the Confederate line. The cornfield was surrounded on three sides by woods. Hooker's Corps emerged from the north woods and began advancing south. General George Meade's division advanced to the cornfield itself, General Ricketts' division through the East Woods, and General Doubleday's division through the West Woods. Union troops advanced slowly through the seven-foot-tall corn, which stretched for over a hundred yards, allowing the Union troops to ponder what could lay beyond. They knew the Confederates were out there somewhere, but where? The Confederate troops, knowing their precarious situation, were not unprepared. They had deployed hours earlier as dawn came, and a brigade of Confederate troops were lying in a small ditch on the opposite side of the cornfield. As the Union troops approached, they could hear the clanging of metal cups and canteens, small talk between soldiers, and the crunching of the corn stalks below their feet. Eventually, as the Union troops came closer, they saw the regimental flags waving above the corn. The Confederates held their fire until finally, Union troops emerged from the corn and began climbing over a split rail fence that marked the end of the field. The Confederates jumped up from the ditch, aimed their rifles towards the Union troops less than 15 feet away, and fired point-blank into the corn. The entire first line of Union troops were either killed or wounded, and the Union troops fired back before running back into the corn. Meanwhile, in the East Woods, 
General Ricketts' division encountered similar resistance, and General Doubleday was blunted in his attack in the West Woods. The three divisions began falling back to their starting positions in the North Woods. The Confederates followed them back across the cornfield and began a major counterattack. However, as Confederate troops emerged from the north side of the cornfield, they were met with the same uncourteous welcome they had given the Union troops, receiving thousands of musket shots to the face. The Confederates, too, were slaughtered and hastily retreated back to their original positions. Hooker's corps regrouped and attacked once more, this time advancing past the cornfield, reaching the south end of the West Woods where the Dunker Church was located. Jackson had moved his headquarters earlier that morning, but the doctors in the field hospital there were surprised to see Union troops surrounding the building. Another Confederate counterattack retook the church, though, and the doctors began treating both Union and Confederate wounded. By now it was 7.30 a.m., and Mansfield's 12th Corps joined Hooker's Corps in the cornfield. The combined force of the two corps began advancing toward Jackson's positions around the Dunker Church, from where Jackson's artillery had begun shelling Union troops with deadly accuracy. Three Hillsdalians joined the attack as part of Mansfield's corps. The two corps advanced across the field under heavy fire before reaching the Confederate line around the Dunker Church. The two sides pour volley after volley into each other and hundreds fall. The Confederate artillerymen recalled firing canister shots, making his cannon the equivalent of a giant shotgun into the Union troops only a few yards in front of him. According to him, all he could see through the smoke of the shot was a pink mist of blood and guts. The Union troops took the Dunker Church and the surrounding area within 15 minutes of their arrival and began preparing to hold it. Jackson, knowing the cornfield and surrounding woods were his best chance at stopping the Union troops, threw in his last reserve in a final attempt to retake the church. He ordered John Bell Hood's brigade to charge toward the Union troops. The Texans did just that and drove Mansfield's and Hooker's men away from the Dunker Church. The Texans continued their advance across the cornfield, trying to take the offensive, but the Union infantry and artillery on the other side tore into them with muskets and artillery. By the time the Texans returned to the church, unsuccessful in crossing the cornfield, 80% of them lay dead or wounded on the battlefield, the highest casualty rate of any unit in the Civil War. Generals Hooker and Mansfield rallied their men for another attack. Union forces once more pressed across the cornfield, now covered with bodies and soaked in blood. The attack began well, but as the Union troops neared the Confederate lines, General Hooker, mastermind of the whole cornfield engagement, was shot in the foot. Bleeding profusely, he lost consciousness and had to be evacuated from the field. Union command would have shifted to General Mansfield, but at almost the same time as Hooker got shot, Mansfield too was wounded. He too was severely hurt, but unlike Hooker, Mansfield would not recover from his wounds and would die not long after. At the critical moment in the battle, when Jackson was out of reserves, the Confederates were holding by a thread and the full weight of the Union force was bearing down on Sharpsburg, the Union attack lost all cohesion and without a commander, the attack shattered and Union troops retreated back to their starting positions in the North Woods. Without further orders from their commanders, the Union troops did not continue the attack. So there, the battle for the cornfield ended. By the end of the fighting there, the entirety of the field had been trampled underfoot or cut by stray bullets, leaving no cornstalk left standing. 13,000 men already lay dead or wounded, and it was only 10 a.m. Meanwhile, just as the battle for the cornfield was winding down, General Sumner, commanding the Union Center, who had also received his orders late, began advancing. His men marched across the middle bridge, formed into three battle lines, and advanced towards the sunken lane in which the center of the Confederate line was based. Sumner's men advanced towards the lane under heavy artillery fire from both in front and from their left at the Dunker Church, now no longer threatened by Hooker's troops. Using the terrain to avoid musket fire, the Union troops emerged from cover only 50 yards from the lane. Confederate troops waited for their chests to emerge over the ridge before opening fire. The Confederate volleys tore into Sumner's men, killing or maiming the entire first row of Union soldiers, just like at the cornfield. Union troops fired back at the Confederates, 
though with only their eyes and muzzles exposed between the slats of the fence and the trench of the sunken lane, the Confederate troops had the upper hand. Two successive waves of Union troops hurled themselves at the lane, taking horrendous casualties. General Sumner sent in his last division to attack the line at noon, one of its brigades being almost entirely composed of Irish immigrants. Thomas Marr, the brigade's commander, was exiled for rebelling against British rule. Marr had a new plan to break through the Confederate center. He noticed that there was a small depression to the right of the sunken lane which he could use to move his brigade around the flank of the Confederates. He would take his brigade through the depression, emerge on the Confederate right, and fire volley after volley down the length of the road. He reckoned that with thousands of Confederates hunkering down in the lane, his men would rarely miss such a large target. At noon, the division began its attack, and as planned, the Irish brigade moved to the right of the lane, while the other two advanced in the same way as the others had before, to provide a distraction. Marr and his men emerged, to the Confederate surprise, on their right, and all 1,000 men of the Irish Brigade began pouring musket balls and buckshot down into the sunken road. Meanwhile, the other two brigades took advantage of the brief lull of Confederate fire caused by the panic to advance even closer to the lanes, and soon these brigades too were firing point-blank down into the lane. The Confederate troops there began falling by the hundreds, and blood quite literally began flowing down the road like a stream. Many Confederates were buried alive by dead and wounded comrades. One officer recalled almost drowning in his own blood because he was stuck face down in his hat. As he bled, the blood trickled down into his hat, filling it up slowly, and, unable to move, he soon was almost unable to breathe. He was only saved from drowning by a hole in his hat caused by a near miss earlier in the battle. Not long after the casualties began mounting, the Confederate troops retreated to the next ridge behind the sunken road, which would later become known as the Bloody Lane. Union troops, however, exhausted and without reinforcements, could not take advantage of the breakthrough, and the attack in the center ended with the capture of the Bloody Lane. Meanwhile, to the south, the final prong of McClellan's assault was getting underway. General Ambrose E. Burnside, commander of the Union 9th Corps, had received his orders at 10 a.m. to take Lower Bridge and advance on Sharpsburg from the south. Even as he heard the roaring musketry and booming cannon to his north, however, he was slow in preparing to attack. He initially ordered part of his corps to advance farther south, hoping to find an uncontested crossing over the Antietam Creek, but this search was of no avail. Then, he finally ordered an attack on the lower bridge at around 10 a.m., just as the battle for the cornfield was ending and the battle for the Bloody Lane was beginning. Burnside's attacks were half-hearted, though, with only one or two regiments attacking at a time. Even with the support of his 50 cannons, one regiment alone would not be able to break through such a narrow choke point. Lee had noticed this half-hearted effort and moved most of the British defenders to the cornfield in the sunken lane, so that when Burnside began attacking in earnest at around 12.30 p.m., only 400 Georgians guarded the bridge from the heights above on the western side of the creek. At 12.30, the main attack began, with Burnside sending his two best regiments, the 51st New York and 51st Pennsylvania, to attack the bridge. They advanced rapidly to the creek, but were pinned down by Confederate rifle fire, and took cover behind a low stone wall on the right side of the bridge's entrance, and a split-rail fence on the left. It looked for a few minutes as though this attack too was doomed to fail, but then the flag-bearer of one of the regiments stood up and, taking the American flag with him, began sprinting across the bridge. The regiments, not wanting to suffer the dishonor of having their flag captured, stood up and began following him. The 400 Georgians saw this, and low on ammunition, retreated from the heights, yielding the bridge to the two 51sts. Burnside began moving his corps over the bridge with similar slowness as his morning movement, and it was only at around 2 p.m. that he was ready to begin the drive towards Sharpsburg from the south. However, even with this extra time Lee had been given, there were no Confederate reserves, as the rest of the army was guarding the cornfield and the northern approaches to town. Burnside was unopposed, 
and had an open road to Sharpsburg and the destruction of the Confederate Army. But then, just as Burnside began his drive on Sharpsburg, his men spotted a large force of Confederates atop a ridge dominating the southern approach to town. It was none other than A.P. Hill, who, with his division of 4,000 men, had marched 17 miles from Harper's Ferry after processing all the Union prisoners there, arriving in Sharpsburg just in time to shore up the gap in the Confederate line. Had Burnside attacked half an hour earlier, he would have taken Sharpsburg, but with Hill's division fresh from Harper's Ferry guarding the way and darkness closing in, Burnside's attack faltered and nightfall saved the Confederate Army. The next day, as the Union Army licked its wounds and bickered about whether or not to attack the Confederates, Lee's army quietly slipped away over the Potomac and back into Virginia. While the Battle of Antietam may have been a draw, the ultimate outcome was clear to all. The Union had successfully driven out Lee from Maryland. It was the first Union victory in the East since April, and Lincoln used it. He not long after issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed all the slaves from the rebelling states. The goal of the war was no longer just to make the nation whole again. It was now to bring about once and for all the end of slavery. It came at a cost, however. September 17, 1862 was the bloodiest single day in American history. For context, 2,000 Americans died in 9-11, 3,000 on D-Day, and 2,000 at Pearl Harbor. The Battle of Antietam outnumbered all three combined. By the end of the battle, 23,000 men lay dead or wounded. That's on average one American killed or wounded every second of that day. Among them were six generals, including Joseph Mansfield, and one Hillsdalian, Sewell A. Jennison, who died of exposure from the battle months later. While many Civil War battles would outdo this total, never again would so many die in one single day. That's it for this season of The Last Full Measure with Carter McNish on Radio Free Hillsdale. If you would like to listen to previous episodes, check out Radio Free Hillsdale's SoundCloud page. I sincerely hope you enjoyed, and on behalf of the entire Last Full Measure team, thank you for listening.